continuing in our study in Galatians, and um, you know we've been going through so much of of this conflict that was happening a couple um, you know a couple thousand years ago, and and you know one of the reasons it's kind of a sad reason in a way that the Bible still speaks to us today is because we. St- still keep having the same conflicts. Uh, We keep coming back to the same things again and again. And uh, this reminds me of, uh, this will date me a little bit, but this reminds me of a a song that a singer from the 70s, a Christian singer, uh, put out. And his name was Keith Green. And I don't know if you guys, those of you who were involved in church back then, remember Keith Green. But he had a song that was called, So You Want to Go Back to Egypt. And and this is very 70s looking person. Uh, And Keith Green, you know, I think captured well what Paul's trying to say. And Paul actually, I mean, Keith Green actually had a similar background to Paul. Keith Green, he was ethnically Jewish and he kind of grew up in a Jewish home. But then he went through what so many people did in the 60s and early 70s where he was just searching for meaning. He was searching for purpose and and he, you know, got caught up in all of the Eastern mysticism that was going on at the time. He got caught up in the the drug scene and all of that and he he just found that it was leading nowhere and then, and somehow Jesus Christ got a hold of his life. And so he knew what it was to walk in this other way. And then he knew what it was to walk as a believer in Jesus Christ. And so when he was asking the question, so you want to go back to Egypt? He was, he was asking the question of why so many Christians, why so many Christians want to just go back, you know, they, they experience the grace and the love of Jesus Christ, but they immediately want to go back to something that's more familiar and more comfortable, something that gives them control, something where they feel like they're, they're earning their way. What's sad about uh, Keith Green is that we, we don't know what Keith Green where his thoughts would have gone and his music and his ministry because sadly in 1982 he died in a plane crash along with uh, two of his children. But just in that short time, you can go back and just look at some of his, some of his songs and just look at the lyrics. What Keith Green was doing was he was in so many ways just calling us out as Christians. And, you know, the music is obviously dated to the 70s, but, but the calling out is not. This desire to keep moving towards what is comfortable, to what is familiar, to what is safe. We want to go back to Egypt. And I think this is, captures well what, what Paul is trying to say. Because what Paul is observing, whether he knows it or not, is there's something about human nature. And it's not just those out there who are outside of Jesus Christ. 
but even among us as Christians. That there's something about us that we, we, we want to give in to, to enslavement. We, we want something or someone to tell us what to do. Or we want someone to pretend that we're free when actually they're, you know, they're keeping us under control. And this thing within us will never allow us to embrace the gospel of grace. Because the gospel of grace promises us neither. And so Paul is here talking to this church that he knows had experienced true faith in Jesus Christ. He knows they had received the Holy Spirit. And he's going to present to us at the end of this section today more evidence just knowing that they had been changed. But they've been duped. They've been told that what you really need to do is come back to the law. You need to take control. That's the way. So in chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, Paul says this. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as is a, a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. If you remember, at the end of chapter 3, and it's kind of unfortunate that there's a chapter break there, but at the end of chapter 3, Paul had been writing, he had been writing about how the law was a pedagogos, or that the law was this, was this person in their society who was responsible for, and this dealt with the sons, not because boys were worse than girls, although it's probably true, but, but because the boys were going to become the heir, that, that they would have this, this servant, this slave, who was responsible to make sure this kid grew up and went through the educational system. So they made sure they got to school, they made sure they stayed at school, and they made sure when they went home that they actually did their homework and studied and reviewed. Man, wouldn't that have been great to have when your kids were growing up, those of you who have grown kids, or those of you who are looking into it, like, wouldn't that be great where you wouldn't have to worry about that at all? Somebody would be like making sure your kids got through the educational system. Well, that's what he had written about. And then at the end of chapter 3, he had just started talking about how all of us, all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, that first of all, that we're all one in Christ Jesus and that we're also, if we're, if we're Christ, then we're Abraham's and we're heirs according to the promise. So 
he connects the end of chapter 3 with the beginning of chapter 4. And he's using a, he's using a, a similar kind of comparison, a similar metaphor, but he's using it in a slightly different way. And one thing I want you to notice here is that the child, at first, is no different from a slave, even though he owns everything. That's what he says. So if you say the paedagogos is a slave, well, in some sense, the child is no different. In fact, it says verse, in verse 2, he's under guardians and managers. And if Paul has in mind here that he's thinking about uh, the Roman way of doing this, then this means all the way up until usually the age of 25. A person would be under guardians and managers. But actually, it tells us until the date set by his father. So the father could set an earlier or later date. But I want you to notice something here. That even, even if he's no longer under the authority of the guardians and managers, in the Roman way of thinking, he's still under the authority of his father. And I think one of the points that Paul is making here, he's saying that we all have a master. We all have a master. That something or someone is, is going to be our master. And you might go, well, no, that's not true. You know, I kind of live my own way. You know, I kind of do my own thing. You know, it's really humbling. It's always been humbling for me. I don't know if it is for you. <clears throat> but what's really humbling is when you think you are the first person to ever think something or to ever do something, and then you read that there's actually a name for your condition, that it's so common among human beings that they've actually given a name for it. And you thought you were so special, and you were just doing your own thing, but you were just, in the end, giving in to some other control in your life. We all have a master. You know, the, the child, when, in this picture here, the child is, is in some ways like a slave. The child needs to do whatever the guardians or the managers tell them. If not, they break, they break the contract. The manager would have been actually the one helping them to administer their money and um, you know, be kind of like a steward, as some of your Bibles say. So they could be slaves, two slaves, by the way. And if they refuse to kind of go along with that, they would still be the, under the authority of their father and perhaps even of their government. But then he says, but you, you're going to get to be an heir. 
but an heir again. It's not a free agent being able to do whatever they want to do. And so he says, that's how it was for the child. How is it for us that we're all enslaved to the elementary principles of the world? There's a lot of discussion, even some differences where it's some uh, versions of the Bible will say elementary spirits. The idea is the same. Idea is this, this thing about like, like there are these these fundamental things. One of the, one of the, the words that's used to understand this is, is you, you look at like the uh, alphabet. And when you think about the elementary principles, you're thinking about the alphabet, like these, these letters and how they're laid side by side. In fact, that's, that's part of the history of the Greek word that's being used here. That there's these letters that are laid by, side by side, but those letters side by side, they're not that useful. They're just letters side by side. Um, I do know someone who named their child Absida, but I think other than that, by the way, that's A, B, C, D, E. Um, other than that, they, those, those letters aren't that helpful. But what are they for? Well, from those letters, we form all the words. From those letters, we're able to express thoughts. And so what Paul's talking about, he's talking about those things that are down at that, that letter level. That in and of themselves, they're just there, but they can be put together in all these different combinations, and they're actually what enslaves us, what directs us. They're our master, and we don't even know it. I mean, how often do you think about the letters in the words that you're saying? Only when you can't spell it, right? When you can't spell the word, then you think about the letters, but otherwise you just talk. You don't sit here and go, oh, you look there, I'm using an X. Oh, what a clever use of the, of the diphthong. No, you don't think that, you just communicate, you just speak. And yet your speech is controlled by those letters. You hope, right? You hope that all of a sudden the letter X, like in your brain, doesn't start getting pronounced like a G. You hope, because that would really be confusing to the rest of us. We would have no idea what you're talking about. But he's saying we're slaves to these elementary principles. Paul doesn't really unpack it for us a lot. In Romans, later on, he'll talk about how we, you know, some of the, at least pointing the direction of these elementary principles have to do with, with our lusts. They also have to do with our, our minds. And they all seem to be kind of centered around this, you know, this desire in this world to, to you know, to make sure we, we, we get through every day that we're taking care of ourselves. And part of taking care of myself is, is sometimes means like you have to become weaker so I can become stronger. I 
I mean, that's what's driving them towards the gospel of law. They can't accept, they can't accept grace. They have, to, they have to feed those elementary principles that are still in their lives that say, no, 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 you are the captain of your ship. You get to define what is truth and how to have truth in your life. Or you need to find a system that allows you to achieve and to work so that you know. It's kind of like what happens with David in the Old Testament where David takes a census and by the way, a census is not evil, but it became evil because God told David, don't take a census. And he said, don't take a census because you only want to take a census so you can think about how awesome you are. And he said, don't take a census, and he did anyways. And there's all this punishment that comes upon the people of Israel because David is disobedient in his pride. Well, that's what happens to us. It's why we're drawn. It's why we're willing to be enslaved again. Because at least, at least when we're enslaved, someone is telling us how we're doing. We want to know. We want to have some way of measuring, you know, like, oh, I'm a better Christian. We want, we want some, you know, way of, of showing that we've progressed. And what inevitably happens is we become a slave to trying to achieve. And we've forgotten that that's not what this is about. You see, there's nothing wrong with the law. Paul makes that clear. There's nothing wrong with the law. What's wrong is what we do with the law. Is when we use the law to to compare ourselves to other people or compare ourselves to ourselves, and to somehow think like, okay, you know, the more I keep the law, the more God has to be happy with me. And the happier He is with me, the more He, he has to bless me. And Christianity becomes this this thing that deserves to be made fun of. If Christianity is simply this thing about keeping God happy so God keeps me happy, what is that? I don't want to believe and follow that kind of gospel because you know what? We can just skip God and all that and just go to somehow feeding our happiness. But that's, that's what happens. And Paul is trying to help them understand that we're all going to have a master. Even under a gospel of grace, there is a master. But he's a wonderful master. In verse 4, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. By the way, those people who want to try to make the Bible more politically correct and say sons and daughters, it's okay to think sons and daughters, but just know like the audience that Paul's talking to, the analogy breaks down if he starts talking about sons and daughters because sons were treated differently from daughters in that time. But the point here says that you're a slave to the elementary principles of the world, but then, then God sent forth his son. And he moved us from being under these guardians, under these managers, that we would receive adoptions as sons. Paul's actually changing the metaphor here. Before, it wasn't about adoption. It was about there's a father, that's his son. His son is trying to be raised so his son can take over the estate. Okay, that's, that was that. But now it's changed. This isn't even the father's son. And he's going to be adopted. What is Paul trying to tell us? He's trying to tell us that through Jesus Christ, true believers can become children of God. True believers can become children of God. He says in the fullness of time, if, if you looked at the metaphor before, he says, he says, how long are we under guardians and managers if we're living in this Roman system? Well, until the date set by his, the Father. Well, here he says, in the fullness of time. We, we could say it this way, just when God planned, according to his schedule. What does this tell us? It tells us God has a plan. It tells us God isn't making this up as he goes. God isn't like, whoa, Adam, Eve, what the heck did you guys do? Oh man, okay, angels, let's get together. What are we going to do? They, they ate from the tree. What are we going to do? We don't have that picture. We don't have the picture of God saying, all right, you know, Israel, I choose you, Israel. You're going to be the light to the rest of the world. Through you, everyone's going to know how they, how they should live and what can happen if they have a right relationship with me. That's what's going to happen. Oh, man. What's going on, Israel? Why you, you keep going back to these false gods? Why? You keep abandoning the law. You keep forgetting the law. Oh man, now what? Whoa, got an idea. Hey, Jesus, come over here. I got a job for you. But sadly, as ridiculous as that sounds, that's what a lot of people think. But the fact that it says fullness of time, this is a time appointed by God. As he'll say, as Paul will write in other letters, he'll talk about how before the foundations of the world, it's always been God's plan. 
He's not making it up as he goes. And we, we need to get out of our heads the notion that everyone is a, children, is a child of God. It's not true. It sounds good. It kind of got into popular American Christianity. We're all children of God. No, we're not. The Bible says we're either children of wrath or children of God. It doesn't say we're all children of God. And if you're going to be a child of God, it's because you have accepted what Jesus Christ did for us. As he says, he says he's going to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Again, Paul's not going to give us all the steps here, but in, in later on in the letter to the Romans, he will say, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice in that word, Lord. That's why I say we will all have a master. Do you want to be enslaved to someone else who's going to tell you what to do? Some other flawed and fallen human who may or may not have your best interests at heart? Do you want to be enslaved to whatever the latest advertising is telling you that this is how you find fulfillment, this is how you find happiness? Or do you want to be tricked into thinking like, no, I'm making up my own mind. This is me, I'm, this is me just this is not anybody else. I'm making up my own mind when in really what's happening is you're just deceiving yourself and that there's all these influences that are making you do what you do. Would you rather have those kind of masters or would you rather have the Lord who's perfect who knows you, who loves you, who wants what is best, not just for you, but for all the children of God. The one who extends grace to his enemies and his friends. I can't wait till chapter five. Well, I'm going to. But I feel like I can't wait. Because in chapter 5, Paul, Paul writes about, this is, what, this is what the church can be like. This is what the world can be like if the Spirit is in it. And this is what it's like when the Spirit's not there. He kind of just puts them side by side. He says, which one? Which Lord do you want? Do you want the Lord who is the Son of God that you will say Abba and Father to? That you can have a close relationship that's based on the love He has for you? 
and the love He gives you that you can give back to Him. It's sad. It's sad because, you know, it's one thing if you've never, if you've never tasted the goodness of God, if you've never known His love in your life, if you've never known the presence of, of, of His Spirit, it's one thing to say like, no, I prefer to stay here where I am. I prefer to kind of live in this world even though I know that you know, it's kind of empty, and even though I know all of these things are fleeting, and in the end, it's just kind of pointless. Even though I know I'd rather stay here. But when someone has actually tasted, when someone has experienced who Christ is, when they know new creation, when they know the presence of the Holy Spirit, and they want to go back there. That's what Paul can't understand. It's what I can't understand. They want to leave the master who is their father, who loves them, and is in control of everything, to go serve some other master outside all in the name of their freedom to live their lives the way they want. I don't have this conversation with a lot of people. It's probably good because I'd probably not be here. I'd probably get punched in the face a lot. You know, but the person who's out there, this is me living my life the way I want, I'm like, how's that working out for you? Okay, if you're Bill Gates, all right, I, you know, we, I'll talk to Bill Gates maybe. But so many people, I'm living my life and they're miserable. They have no hope. There's no peace. They're, they're angry all the time. They're worried all the time. Everything. You know, they're always comparing themselves to other people. They're always wondering if they're good enough or they're thinking they're way good enough. And they can't understand why other people can't see how awesome they are. How's that working out for you? Oh, I know it's working out for some people living their own way, living their own life, at least they think it is. But for the Christian, the one who's truly experienced Christ in their lives, how could you ever go back? That's the point Paul makes next. In verse 8 he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. Paul's very confusing here because sometimes it seems like he's talking to the Jewish people and sometimes it seems like he's talking to the Gentile people. My guess is that he's actually talking to primarily to the Jewish people who were living like Gentiles and had now become Christians. That's my best guess. But it can be confusing. But he says... You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. 
He says, but now that you have come to know God, and then he gives one of those great short little passages that we forget. Now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. You see, we think it's so important that we know God. And by the way, it is important that you know God. But what's far more important is that God knows you. Now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? How can you become slaves again? And Paul is so exasperated. You know, he's kind of like, you know, as a parent, I've, as a child, I heard this from my mom. And as a parent, I probably spoke this way to my children, where you're so exasperated that, that you don't, you stop connecting your thoughts. You're like, how can you do that? You know, the dog in the bathtub with mud. You know, you just start saying stuff, right? It, it may have happened yesterday, it may have happened just now, but you just start saying stuff because you're so frustrated. And it may not even be the worst thing that, that you did or that the kid did. It's just, you just, that's what came to mind. And Paul seems so frustrated. Who, he says, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slave you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I mean, of all the things he could have pulled out, he pulls out this. Could have pulled out a lot worse things. You know, he doesn't talk about, you know, temple prostitution and all these other things that were going on. He talks about this. And then he says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. The point Paul is trying to make is that if you're a true believer, you will never want to leave the love of God. It doesn't mean that, that those things don't still, have, don't, don't still attract you, don't still tempt you. But it means you know what they are and you know what it will cost if you go back to them. He's saying, look, Here's the love of God that you've experienced. Here's the elementary principles of the world that you also experienced. Why are you going back? You see, these, these elementary principles, like I said, they're, they're what we're comfortable with, or what we're familiar with. They, they give us either a false sense of freedom or a false sense of security. And in some ways, we, we want to go back to slavery, just like the Israelites wanted to go back to Egypt. But Paul's not really talking about those things. Notice he just calls them elementary principles. He doesn't define them for us. He doesn't unpack them other than to just blurt out the days and months and seasons and years. He doesn't, doesn't help us there. 
And I think that's because that's not the point. The point isn't that, that these things are going to enslave you. The point is you want to be enslaved. The problem's not with those things. The problem is with you and me. What is it about us that would exchange who we are in Christ for those things? Are we being bewitched, as Paul said earlier? Are we being fooled? Or is there something inside of us that's drawn back? He's trying to say that's what that's what you need to take care of. We, we know Paul believes that, that the Galatian Christians are truly Christians. We know he believes that. They haven't proved to him they're not yet. Otherwise, he wouldn't be writing to them. He wouldn't be appealing to their experience in Christ. And so he's trying to help them to see this is what happens. And you cannot have both. You cannot be enslaved to the elementary principles of the world and call Jesus Lord. If Jesus is Lord, He is Lord. He will have no rival. If He has a rival, He's not Lord. The last thing Paul does here is he goes back to talking about personal experiences. And I'm just going to read through this and then just make this one point. He says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out. They want that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. In short, what Paul is saying, he's saying, remember back when we first met? Remember when I came to you and I was kind of a burden to you because we're not sure exactly what Paul had that was wrong with him, but he had something that was wrong with him that he had to go. And he says, remember that? Remember how you received me? Remember how you treated me like an angel of God? Remember how you went out of your way and you did all you could and you wanted to do more? Paul didn't know this analogy to use, but he could have said, you know, if my kidney, one of my kidneys went bad, you would have given me one of your kidneys. Such care, such love, and you barely knew me. We had this bond. Why? Because I'm awesome? Because you're awesome? No. 
The reason is, is because the Holy Spirit was uniting our hearts and pouring out God's love in our lives because we understood and we had received the gospel of grace. And Paul's saying, what happened? The only difference between then and now is you've received a different gospel. And now you hate me. Now you treat me like an enemy. Now we can't even dialogue. We can't even talk. We can't even discuss this. What Paul is trying to help them understand is that, that those relationships we had, that was the evidence. And that's why relationships, healthy Christian relationships, are so important for us. They're so important for us, not just because they're good. A lot of people have this kind of, ah, you know, yeah, okay, fellowship, yeah, sure, maybe, sort of. You know, if it's convenient, I'll fellowship with other Christians, I'll build relationships, but if it's not, that's okay. And we think that it's just an optional thing. But Paul is telling them, like, no, this, these healthy Christian relationships were evidence that you had received the true gospel. And I think when we have healthy Christian relationships, that evidence helps keep us focused on the truth. I think the gospel of the law comes into churches, comes into our lives when we lose healthy Christian relationships. And I've lived long enough to just see this happen in so many ways. I see churches that become so task-oriented, so driven by programs that they, that they will sacrifice relationships. They will sacrifice healthy Christian relationships in the name of doing what's pragmatic or what works. Look, I'm all for pragmatism. I'm all for doing things that work, that make sense. But we have to understand that our primary task in relating to one another is relating to one another. If all we do is get jobs done, but those jobs don't actually make us closer to each other, more in love with each other, they're just jobs that are getting done. It's not the church. The relationships in the church are so important. It's one of the reasons I don't just, I don't just, just tell you all the brilliant things in my head. Because first of all, some of them aren't brilliant, and you know the ones that are, I don't always recognize. But one of the reasons is because it's not just about me telling everybody what to do. It's not about me just making all the rules. It's not me deciding everything. And I try to get the church leadership to be the same way. Even when you know what's right, 
You have to be able to present truth and what's right in a way that builds relationships and builds unity rather than just letting everybody know you're right. And we forget that so much. We forget that those, that person annoying us in the church, that person who disagrees with us is our brother and sister in Christ. And we need to find a way to love them. We need to find a way to do all things that foster this love for one another. And especially those who are different from us. Some of us are okay with loving people just like us in the church. We can make friends with our same age group or, um, you know, our same, if we have similar interests. No, but the, the incredible powerful testimony of the church to the world is when people who have no earthly business to be together want to be together and love one another. And it's not just proof to the world. It's proof to us. It's encouragement to us. If all that you have in your heart is love for people just like you, that is not the love of God. God's love will, will drive us, compel us to love those who are different. We can become heirs. We can move from being slaves to this world and the elementary principles of this world and to ourselves. But we can't just hang out in some middle area. If we're going to become heirs, we become the family. We become children of God, the family of God. And we live out this life together. Everybody thinks the inheritance comes after we die. No, it comes right now. It comes right now. And the blessings come in who we are as a church.